Welcome to Ocean Stories, a podcast hosted by me, Lydia Carey, and me, Sarah Hurstbing. We may not be marine experts or even professional scuba divers, but we are curious about the ocean and ways to protect it. Every week, we chat with conservationists, researchers, business owners, and anyone else with an ocean story to tell. So whether you're a scientist or someone who's simply curious about the big blue, you're in the right spot. We can't save the seas alone, but we can do it together. Welcome back to episode 10 of the Ocean Stories podcast. It's crazy. Does it feel like 10? I feel like it's, it feels like way more. What do you think? 10 weeks we've been at this and I totally agree. We talk about it all the time, but we have come so far from when we first started and it's uh, really fun to see how it feels like when we started, we were just babies that had no idea what was going on. And now it's only been 10 weeks and I'm like, what's up? Like, yeah, I know. It's so funny. Actually, I edited this, the one that's coming up now. And it's, it's really interesting to listen to. But it was funny because it was one of the first ones we recorded. And back then, we would sometimes like, say one weird word and be like, Oh, can I ask this question again? Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. now we're just stumbling and saying the weirdest stuff. And it's just, I don't know, like the confidence and also like getting red when someone says something crazy. Yes, I was going to say in this episode, uh, you can check out in the YouTube uh, video that I, whenever I speak, my face changes color because I was so nervous. I was just nervous about everything. So yeah, and it, I genuinely, if I tell you when I look at both of us, I'm like, who are these people? Which doesn't make sense. It's been 10 weeks, but it feels like we were 14 in this video. Like, I yeah, don't so even know. To but, our listeners, we're getting better every day. We've exponentially, <laughs> I'm serious, like we have exponentially improved our interview skills. I mean, we're improving all the time, so... But also, if you think about the crash course from, like, going from absolutely nothing to then recording, I don't even know, like, how many things we've recorded at this point, but it's far from, far from the 20. Um, True. So, yeah, but this is still... Episode 10. It's actually a really fun one. It's super interesting. It's very related to what Lydia studied in school. Lydia actually... Well, you go, because you were... During that episode, Lydia is like, oh, yeah, you're just, like, relating everything. I feel like I just yeah, I was geeking out, and I was times. having trouble even articulating what I meant. But my seed majors, my community development majors, this one's for you. It's just really cool to hear from people that are working super cool jobs, working in communities, trying to better a situation, whether it's where you're from or whether it's abroad. In this case, in Indonesia, it's just super cool to hear about someone like that's their career. They're working in all these community-led programs that are environmental they're related to humans they're like intersecting issues this is like everything i studied and i just found it wow super interesting and just like i said fun to hear about that someone is actually out there doing this and i'm sure there's lots of other people out there with these types of jobs so if you're a seed major any of that's interesting to you human environment intersections you're gonna love this episode (laughs) and one thing i actually was really inspired by is i feel like this one well this episode is well, everything we're talking about is placed on a little tiny island in Indonesia. And it's crazy how much impact they have, not only on the island, but also on just generally the ecosystems and like maybe later on replicating what's happening on the island on a bigger scale. And I feel like like in this day and age, because everything is so international and the sky's the limit and with whatever social media, everyone wants like an international business. You always like reach for the stars, which is good, but... It was really inspiring that sometimes you can actually do a lot if you focus on the place that you are and focus on the community that you are in. And then maybe like, I don't know, they're they're literally inventing stuff that hopefully one day can be placed everywhere in the world. But they invented it by focusing on what they have, what the issues are, how they can fix what's right in front of them. And so much came out of it. So I think that was super inspiring and really cool. Yes, solutions-oriented, optimistic. By the time this comes out, our New Year's episode will be out. So go listen to that to hear us talk about climate solutions and being positive and focusing on the people that are actually doing amazing things. Like like you said, literally inventing things to save the coral and what have you. So This one is about corals, about waste management, about 
baby turtles and about horses. Like, how many boxes All can you that. tick? Mm. Community. It's great. It's really exciting. Um, so yeah, who are we talking today? Who are we talking today? Who are we talking, <laughs> who are we to, talking today? to today? <laughs> we are talking to Sean from Gilly Eco Trust. She is originally from the UK, but has living in the Gilly Islands in Indonesia for 11 years. If you don't know where that is, it is off the northwest coast of Lombok, Indonesia. I had to look at a map, so no hate if you didn't know where that was. Sean started by working on projects that were about nesting turtles and mangrove restoration, and then did coral restoration and fell in love with it, and has been working on coral restoration ever since. So quite a wide range of topics, like Sarah said. And now she's working for Gilly EcoTrust, which is an organization doing all sorts of conservation, waste management, ocean protection, awareness, education stuff on Gilly Tea, the island. So we're super excited for you to hear this episode. Thank you, Sean, for coming on. Let's get into it. Welcome to Ocean yep. Stories. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm really well. I'm really happy to be here as well. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Yeah, we're thank super you. excited we're so to, have to have you. you. Where are you today? So right now I am in Gili Trawangan. So it's a tiny little island off the coast of Lombok, which is about three hours, two hours away from Bali in Indonesia. Lovely. And so tell us. Quite the time difference from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for again. sure. We are getting better and better at handling these time differences. How long have you been there? Um, I've been living on Gili Trawangan for the last 11 years. Um, I wish I'd spent more time traveling the rest of Indonesia, but I know this island very, very well now. <laughs> mm. It is not that big, right? I think I've it visited it not once. That big. And is it the you one have... with the horses? Yes, there's lots of ponies. So it's quite very unique in the sense that there's never been allowed any cars, motorized cars or motorized vehicles. So the traditional way of transport is horse and cart or push bike. So everybody's on a bike. I would say everybody's a little bit fitter than they usually are. But if you go all the way around the island, it's about seven kilometers all the way around. So you can kind of walk the entire island in about an hour and a half. Yeah, I remember that. I actually, when I was in, on Bali working with Emma, um, I came over there quite a few times. It was really That's fun. Like... But yeah, it is definitely small. Um, I did the whole loop in what you just said, yeah. probably less, less than yeah, two hours. Less time, probably. <laughs> but beautiful. It's it's so pretty. The beaches are incredible. Definitely one of the main reasons why I'm here, I think. The beaches and the ocean, and it's just a stunning, yeah, really, really stunning place to live. I can only imagine. So you are from England, is that correct? I am, yes. I'm originally from the UK. So how did you end up in Bali? Well, the journey, I've always been obsessed with the ocean and um, we didn't really travel too much when I was uh, younger and when I was a child. We did a lot of um, holidays around the UK, especially in Wales, because it's one of the best places and the wettest places to go camping. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> ever been to Wales. But um, yeah, the coastlines there are beautiful. So we spent every holiday rock pooling and jumping in the sea and jumping into waves. So even though I grew up in a forest called the Forest of Dean, so we literally lived in a forest, um, we would always Ooh. make escapes to the coast. Um, and spend as much time um, by the sea and in the sea and under the sea as possible. And I think jumping forwards to our first holiday abroad, we went to um, Zanti and um, I did my first scuba dive at 12 years old. And yeah, after that, you know, I always wanted to be a dolphin when I was a kid because I was obsessed with dolphins and everything about dolphins. And then, yeah, I took the plunge and uh, my parents got me this Discover Scuba Dive and yeah, I was instantly hooked. Didn't have the money to be hooked at 12, but then when I finished college, I took a gap year and um, went scuba diving, did as many courses as I could. Um, I dived a bit in Egypt and then I went straight over to Malaysia when I was 18 and started doing some conservation work there with turtles. So then my obsession from, changed from dolphins uh, to turtles. And then I came back to the UK and studied geography in Swansea. So back to Wales, because that's where my heart is really. Um, 
And then I wanted to study marine biology because I thought that was the path to kind of be in the marine world and to make sure that I could do everything with the ocean. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get the right results that I wanted to get into that. So I switched over to geography and geology. And honestly, that was probably the best thing that I could have chosen just because geography is so applicable to everything about the way that we are in this world and the way that the world is changing. So we did a lot of work in climatology, um, glaciology, oceanography, and um, yeah, it was just kind of seeing how humans are interacting with the world and how sustainable that is. And yeah, it, it took me on a path of being obsessed with everything about the environment, everything about our world, um, and just making sure that I could try and do a little bit to help that as well. So once I finished uni, I, or whilst I was in uni, I went to Honduras to study mangrove populations and eco restoration over there. So that was really, really cool. And then, you, I, you know, I feel like my mind was always a little bit all over the place, not really knowing what I wanted to do. So I spent two months there and really thought, you know, mangroves is my thing. That's my jam. I really love, you know, being in mangroves, this really stinky, silty mud and collecting sediment samples, <laughs> taking them back to what we call the poo lab, just because everything smelt quite bad and sulfurous, um, which was really, really cool. And I absolutely loved doing that. I then ended up going back to Malaysia, um, to the same island where I did some turtle conservation when I was 18. And I think I went back when I was like 23. Um, and then after that, I continued there. I did my dive master. So I was diving this, you know, wherever I was around the world and finished my dive master in Malaysia um, and carried on working with this turtle project, which has still got like a massive place in my heart. Um, mm -hmm. And then from there, I went back to England. I got a job, which was with a charity, but it wasn't anything about the environment. I was just looking for a really good summer job and they had some amazing incentives with different travel companies. So I actually ended up winning a trip to kind of anywhere on this gap year um, website that this company that I was working with was um, partnered with. And they gave me the option for a free trip to Indonesia to do a six week uh, coral conservation course. Um, and yeah, I think in week two of coming to Indonesia, you know, just literally flying straight to this tiny little island with zero research about what Gili Tarangan was all about. I actually was told it there was a lot of mangroves here and there definitely aren't a lot of mangroves, but there are a lot of turtles and the corals are fantastic. And yeah, I think it was within the second week of my training um, with the Gili Eco Trust and doing this conservation course at Tarangan Dive, um, I was hooked and I was like, okay, I think I found my calling. I think this is what I want to do and where I want to be. Um, and now, uh, 11 years later, I can teach the course myself. So yeah, I feel like that's kind of the path that got me to Gilly Tea was definitely not one that I was expecting. So then after five years of uh, being a diving instructor and five years of nonstop harassment for the poor team at Gilly Eco Trust to let me work with them, um, they finally agreed in 2016. So I've been working with the Gilly Eco Trust um, full time instead of just a diehard volunteer ever since then. Wow, that's incredible. That's really cool that you won this trip and that's how you ended up in the place that yeah. you live now. I feel really, really lucky and um, yeah, to just get that experience and to see that, you know, 11 years later, then that is, you know, the thing that really changed my life and managed to make me come out here and stay out here, which is good. The cat has now noticed that there's stuff, <laughs> okay. so I apologize for the cat and the rooster's outside and it's just a bit of a crazy place, but yeah. That's just authentic. <laughs> it's, yeah, I was yeah. gonna say you're just being real. Start hearing the roosters through the microphone, then you'll hear how authentic it is. It's awesome to hear about all the work you've been doing in coral restoration in the years that you've been living there. Can you talk? You mentioned G Gilly Eco Trust. Can you talk a little bit about how your work? I cannot speak today. Is it Jilly or Gilly? Uh, Gilly. I really have always said Jilly my whole life. That's fine. That's yeah, I okay. mean, even the word Tarangan, that took me months to be able to even be able to pronounce that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm always like Tarangan. Tarangan. We get some really good ones here. <laughs> For those of us who don't know, can you paint us a picture of what the biggest environmental challenges are on the island and who's working on them and what's the situation? Um, I'd say right now, which is good and bad, but the, the, the main issue with the island is over-tourism. So it's a term I've heard being coined more recently than, than for a long time, because obviously we've got, 
tourism is great. It brings lots of money to the economy and everything. Um, there's a massive element of unsustainable tourism, um, just different things that are not working in the way that it should be. Um, and then over tourism, whereas, you know, this is a finite island, it's tiny. Um, people come here to see palm trees and beautiful white beaches, but obviously to get the more the sheer numbers of people that want to come now, they've cut down so many of the trees, they've concreted all the dirt paths. Um, the beaches have had all the trees cut down, so the beaches have actually eroded quite a lot. Um, so we do have a lot of problems, which is all, you know, indirectly related to tourism um, from some way or another. Um, and then the other massive factor is plastic pollution. And that comes from tourism, but indirectly, it's not just the tourists that are bringing the rubbish and that's not the main issue. It's just the fact that, um, again, waste management on a tiny island, um, coupled with the complications with um, it being a government job to try and pick up the waste, but they don't do it. So it's been quite complicated in that sense, but I think they're the two kind of main, main issues that we're trying to fight is over tourism um, and pollution which again, they're brother and sister in that as well. Do you think there would be a way to have a more sustainable tourism on the island? Like, would it just be minimizing the crowds that are coming in? Or like, is there a concept how it could be done more sustainably? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think the island can definitely handle the amount of people. It's just the way that everything is kind of put together is unsustainable. So um, the island is growing in popularity. It's it's boosting the economy. So all of these things are fantastic, especially for the local community that have had, you know, it's been a really shitty few years for all of the local community here with um, natural disasters and COVID and things like this. So having a busy island is fantastic for the economy but if it could be done in a more sustainable way um it's so achievable you know we're such a tiny island and i always look at it as we're kind of like a tiny little case study of like an example of what the world is um we have all the same problems as the rest of the world does um but we're just all put into like this tiny tiny little circle of an island so if we can create a sustainable model on an island this size then that can be replicated and expanded to other islands so we're trying to take some of our sustainable projects over to Gili Menno and Gili Air. So then, you know, we can already replicate into islands that are the same size, similar kind of um, area and, and climate and everything, and then move to bigger places like mainland of Lombok and mainland of Bali and, and different parts of Southeast Asia. So I think that once you have a good model in place, um, give or take a few different conditional differences um it's hopefully a model that can be replicated and taken to different places that is really cool how you said it's like a small example of the bigger world um and that you can kind of experience uh, experiment around that's probably also how the waste management i imagine it's it's just easier because the place is so small to just have a better overview of everything that's going on and um can you talk a little bit more about the waste management side of things Yeah, it is meant to be a state kind of service. So just like electricity and water, um, waste management should be done by the government. Um, they haven't been doing it here since uh, about 2016, 2017. I think um, the whole system kind of collapsed. So after four or five days, um, the island has realized that with the with nobody picking up rubbish for four or five days, just, you know, it's it's hot here. So stinky rubbish left on the streets. Um, it's not pleasant for the people who have to walk past it. It's, it's definitely not pleasant for tourism and things like this. So um, we took over very rapidly. Um, we didn't want to, but there wasn't really anybody else in place just because we were primarily a marine-based conservation organization rather than a waste management um, but also what we found out is you cannot protect the ocean without sorting out the issue that is coming from the land, which is destroying and killing the ocean. So actually by taking on the waste management, it was a massive struggle, um, but it just meant that we could then start implementing more things in place. So instead of just moving all of the rubbish from point A on the beach to where all the businesses are to point B, which is the dump in the middle of the island, it's been there for about 30 years. And for this whole time, it's been, you know, moving the rubbish from there to there, setting it on fire, problems gone we know that the problem hasn't actually gone. We know mm -hmm. how toxic the smoke is. We know how bad the leaching is into the soil from all of this like very contaminated waste. Um, so we also set up a bank sampa, which 
in English, it literally means the bank of rubbish. So people can bring their rubbish to the bank sampa. It's like a recycling center. Um, and there's lots of different types of plastics, especially, but also cardboard, tin, glass um, that has a monetary value and can be either repurposed or recycled in Indonesia. So by setting up this waste bank, it meant that, um, number one, we could start um, scanning the, the top of the dump by hand and picking up anything that had been mixed into the rubbish, which potentially could be recycled. But it also gave a chance to the local community to actually go out, um, you know, pick up their own rubbish or pick up rubbish that they found on the streets and things and bring it to the bank sampah and get money for it as well. So it's a very small amount of money per plastic bottle that you get. But, you know, the sheer number of plastic bottles that are consumed on an island, which is very warm and lots of tourists, um, they, you know, we're getting thousands of plastic bottles every single day coming through the recycling center. So it was trying to set up like a little bit of a, a trash to cash scheme. So the locals could see a reason to keep everything clean. Um, they make money out of it. We get a chance to compress it into massive blocks. And then we actually transport it off the island to Lombok. And then from there in Lombok, um, it goes through a recycling stream, usually um, ending up in places like Surabaya, which is one of the recycling capitals of Indonesia, um, where there it will start getting shredded and cleaned and then turned into different products. So in a nutshell, we go around the island every morning. Um, we have some horse carts. Um, we had to take them out of work in 2016 because they were not treated well at all. So that was a massive issue is that the dump ponies were some of the, you know, the least taken care of um, on the entire island. So it took a couple of weeks to get them up to health and to give them proper rest, which they'd never really had. Um, and then in 2019, the government actually allowed us to um, bring on these motorized carts, these small kind of like vehicles that we can obviously load even more um, and we can eliminate the, the essence of cruelty of using animals for uh, picking up waste and, and working and things like that. So now we've got a good healthy mixture uh, between two. So then we're trying to get the businesses to actually start separating their waste. Um, if they start to recycle at source, then it obviously makes it a lot easier for us and at a higher rate, the less contaminated rubbish. So we can actually uh, recycle way more of it, get it off the island. Then the money that we sell the rubbish for in Lombok, that actually pays the salary of the staff that go and pick up all the rubbish. So that's trying to be a circular waste. Um, the more rubbish we pick up, the better, because then that's more salary for the boys and a bonus if they, uh, you know, pick up the certain amount of plastic bottles and cans and things like this. So that's been working really well for the last few years. Another massive um, issue that we have is is food waste from hotels and things. Um, and then dealing with like glass bottles, because I don't know if you know that Gili Terangan is a bit of a party island. So mm -hmm. it's kind of, um, we get a lot of people coming from Bali just for drinking and parties, a lot of people from Australia, a lot of backpackers coming. Um, and essentially, one of my biggest things is just trying to show people that the island isn't just for partying. There are so many other things that we can do, but we do get an insane amount of glass waste. So then it's also trying to utilize this glass waste into usable products around the island as well, because glass is heavy. Melting glass is quite difficult because of the energy taken to actually melt the glass is quite unsustainable as well in a place like this. So we've got massive machines which crush glass back into sand. So then we make like sandy aggregate, which we can then mix with cement powder, oh. fresh water and glue. We make these massive construction bricks, um, which I'll hopefully need to build my new house with when it falls down. Um, but yeah, we make these massive bricks and they're really heavy because they've got loads of these glass shards in them. Um, it creates like a much of a stronger bond by having this glass inside them. Um, so when businesses build out of this, um, we're essentially building out of the waste that they've created before they've built their bar with these bricks and things. Um, and the actual bricks themselves are just a lot cheaper than um, buying a regular brick on Gilly. So we're trying to do lots of different solutions to, you know, many, many problems that come with over tourism and just trying to tackle them in as many different ways as we can. Something I love about this story that you just laid out, just talking about the waste management issue in and of itself, is how many players that are touch points on this sort of wicked problem. You have the tourists different kinds of tourists, people coming for different reasons, whether to party, whether to dive, X, Y, Z. You have the people that live there, the native population, the local population, and then people that have moved there. You have an animal welfare element actually involved, yep. a scientific element with the people turning the glass into sand, into bricks and all of this, and then also working with the government. 
there's so many layers and it's something you touched on in your life story when you were talking about your education that the issues that impact the ocean are actually tied in so many ways to so many other groups of people. It really takes a lot of different players to tackle these issues yeah. because plastic pollution is really one of the biggest threats to ocean yeah, health. This is it. And it is, um, I don't want to say everything ends back at that, but that is definitely, as you say, one of the biggest threats I think that we're facing here, being in the ocean, being on the beaches, um, not only as we all know, um, is it killing our ocean life and our ecosystems that we depend on? Um, the economy depends on that. Tourism depends on that. So not only are we sitting there consuming plastic with every single you know, drink of water and breath of air, um, it's the fact that if the island is full of visible rubbish, not just microplastics, then tourists will start to give that feedback to other tourists and then people will stop coming. And, you know, and then we go back to the sense that, you know, then nobody's coming to the island so we've got all of these hotels and stuff which are then super empty and then the local community has no money then they do more unsustainable practices so it is just uh, yeah you can't really solve one thing without looking at all of the other things and then when you kind of open that trap door there's a lot of things so can you explain a little bit more what kind of projects Gilly Equitrust is actually doing? Because we already touched on the waste management. I'm pretty sure there is something about coral restoration, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. And I'm sure that's not all of it. Can you explain like all of the different parts of the charity? Yeah. I feel like we try to split everything into four main pillars. Um, the first one and foremost is marine conservation and ecosystem restoration, um, simply because that was the main basis um, of the charity being set up in the first place. Um, it's my main passion. I came here for scuba diving and for coral reefs. Um, and, you know, the more time we spent underwater, then we realized that the issues did kind of move on the land as well. So that's where the waste management pillar comes in, which we've touched on. Um, animal welfare is a massive thing just because um, the island is, the main transport is horse and cart. Um, they don't have the same standards of welfare as we do in some Western countries or the majority of Western countries. So it's a massive culture shock for tourists to come here and see this. Uh, quite rightly so as well. So working with um, horse cart drivers is an incredibly long, slow process, but the slower the education, you know, the more sustainable it is at the end. So we're making some really good progress, um, getting the drivers to trust us and giving out free medication, giving out free workshops, um, getting in farriers coming from international, usually from uh, Australia. We'll get uh, equine vets coming just for a holiday. They spend a week here and they just look at as many horses as possible and treat them with whatever wounds and ailments and injuries they might have. So that's been going on for a really long time. Um, also coupled under that is we are a crazy cat island. So there are so many cats on the island, um, less so now just because of the charities in place, um, but because no dogs have been allowed on the island um, ever. So we don't have a problem with dogs, but there has obviously been an increase in stray cats and things like this. So um, also under the Gilly Trust, we have the Cats of Gilly. So that's a part of um, another project that we've got um, a lovely crazy cat lady who is managing all by herself a cat cafe and a cat rescue center. So anybody can bring stray cats there. We try and rehome them. But then also she's putting up uh, like neutering programs to be able to uh, neuter cats um, and put them back into where they live. Just because even the stray cats here are very, very tame. They're very happy and um, they're usually quite generously fed by whichever hotel that they live around so um, we've started to see a massive improvement with less malnutrition cats no dumped cats uh, not massive litters of kittens and things so um, yeah that's a really good thing and then the final pillar is um, ecotourism and education so again it's never going to be the last because it's the least important because without any education then nobody will know about any of these things so um, we do a lot of work in that um, but yeah I think that Coral conservation and marine protection is the the primary one and the kind of format. The reason why we started everything is just because it is such a beautiful place to scuba dive in the Gilly Islands. Um, we've got, you know, beautiful coral reefs, some really, really nice dive sites. There's really strong ocean currents at times of the year. And this just brings in like a wealth of more biodiversity. Um, and we've got loads of turtles as well. So that's another project that we've set up is trying to protect and educate um, about all the turtles that we've got on the island too. So it's a little bit of everything. I can't even imagine what a day-to-day -day <laughs> looks like for you. <laughs> How do you yeah, wake up in the morning different and, every day. <laughs> and decide which product to work on? Um, can you explain a little bit more about the work that you do for the marine conservation and what the coral restoration and now the new turtle project look like? 
Yes. So since 2002, we've been um, working with an organization called Biorock and a, a restoration method of coral reefs, um, which basically uses mineral accretion. We create these massive metal structures um, because they're made out of locally sourced rebar. So we use exactly the same materials that all of the businesses are using to build. So it's very cheap for us to get this material. It's quite malleable, so we can actually bend these big structures into different shapes. So the best ones are like little domes and tunnels and things, but then onto that you can utilize um, an octopus or a crab or a palm tree or a fish or a shark so then when you're actually looking at them it's bringing in more tourists to actually see this work just because it looks really cool from above it looks really cool to scuba dive um, but when we actually go and transplant broken corals onto the structures um, we're using it's quite a unique technology biorock because we're actually putting electricity into the water and uh, making this structure live so by adding electricity to it it doesn't mean that every time you go and touch it you're going to get like a, a massive electric <laughs> shock it's only about one volt 1.2 volts um but this is enough to create a reaction in the seawater so um we're getting minerals that are dissolved in the water um calcium and carbonate um which secrete onto the biorock structure um it creates some really big living structure of limestone and limestone is the uh, base factor in the skeleton of corals so then we've kind of created this raised up bed so it's just like gardening on land it's much better to have like a raised up flower bed because there's less like chance of um, being smothered by dirt and sand and things um, same with sediment underwater um, so they've got this little raised up bit and it also removes um, the risk from predators um, snails and crown of thorns and stuff climbing up um, and getting to them as well so by putting them on these structures and putting it uh, turning it on um, we're actually creating this big reaction it boosts the growth of the corals up to six times so they actually grow a lot faster on a on a bio rock than they do on a natural reef um, so it's really good for that and then also when we do get times of temperature stresses in the ocean we obviously know these are becoming more and more frequent and more and more severe um, then it's actually stopping or creating a very high resistance to coral bleaching as well. So it's worked really well in the last few mass bleaching events that we've had. We think that by the end of this year, we'll be entering um, another mass bleaching event. Um, it hasn't happened in Asia just yet, but we've got lots of research in place to try and kind of check over the, over the weeks to see kind of any changes in temperature, salinity, um, sun intensity and coral growth and coral health. So that's one project that we've been doing, again, for quite a long time now, so almost 20 years. So we've got around 160 biorocks in place. Um, it's a really, really cool dive site. It's one of the best places to night dive, I think, just because all the critters kind of go in there to hide at night uh, from predators. So obviously, if you go there with a torch, then you get to see all of these like very, very docile sleeping animals and you get lots of hunting predatory fish on them as well. Um, but they're really good for snorkeling. So we also try and take lots of snorkel tours of people who maybe aren't divers, um, but they want to, you know, learn a bit more about the ocean environment. So we obviously, again, they turn into our entry level eco warriors. So we want to be able to introduce them to this wonderful thing. And because the biorocks are all sunk at around two meters deep, uh, between two meters and 10 meters, it just means that when you're snorkeling in these really clear waters, you can look down and you can see everything down there as well. So it's it's kind of good for education at the same time. What has it been like sharing those beautiful bio rock reef experiences with visitors to Gili T? What has the reaction and reception been like? It's it takes me back to my first reaction. It was like you know I'd spend all of my childhood watching um, David Attenborough documentaries and watching coral reefs and being obsessed about how you know how beautiful and colorful they are so to actually see that on people's faces um we show them a little documentary that was made by some film crew for us about building this bio rock so we kind of show them you know how we build it how we sink it what it looks like a year later and then we take them to actually show them the actual bio rock which is now you know it's almost eight years old the one that's in this documentary so to yeah to watch them go in the water is really nice to listen to them come out with even more questions than they went in is really fantastic and for them to kind of realize that you can actually just go snorkeling and see stuff just as amazing as going scuba diving um so it's really really nice it's really heartwarming to see all of the incredible hard work paying off visibly by looking at underwater but then also to get the feedback from people who've never maybe seen this kind of thing before and how successful it is so it's really really promising I imagine it's quite a formative experience in terms of environmental education. If you're going to get an environmental education somewhere, it might as well be in Indonesia, doing the diving yourself, it, yeah. restoring the reefs yourself. This is it. 
And it's, it's really hard because a lot of uh, conservation projects, you do need to be a marine biologist and you do need to have all of these qualifications or a very strong background in, in oceanography or something like this. Um, so to be able to give people a kind of hands-on introduction and to make them feel like they are really a part of it by going and seeing all of these reefs, maybe picking up some plastic as they go through, then it's just kind of putting in that thought that, you know, you don't need to be a marine biologist to be able to get to this level you can learn about it you can do all these things you can take action without having um, a background in it as well so it's quite nice to show people that the, there are different options out there than um, just going down the scientific route so can you be a volunteer for that project without having a marine bio background is that what you just said <laughs> yeah basically you can as long as you're a scuba diver um, I mean most scuba divers like the ocean which is the reason why they scuba dive um, but that's basically the only thing that the interns do need beforehand is to be a certified scuba diver and to love the ocean want to learn something more about it means the interns that have come for personal development or on a gap year or haven't really decided what they would like to do with their life um, they can then be assistant to these researchers and um, they can get an amazing experience being able to help out um, collect data whether it's underwater or on the land um, and just yeah be a really good immersive experience to then see if that's something that they want to do what does this bio rock look like could you do it on a really large scale could we technically do it everywhere around the world um or is it more on a small scale like what how how can i imagine this whole project to look like That's a super good question. Um, when you're saying large scale, like right now we've got them quite small scale, even though I think we're this, we've got the second largest concentration of Biorox in the world and the largest is in Bali. So our partners in Bali are also doing a really good job with Biorox as well. Um, but other than that, um, it could be replicated for sure. Um, it would cost more because of the electricity and things like this, but more the fact that um, it works so well in the Gillies just because of the climatic and the ocean conditions we have. Um, there isn't one single reef restoration like method which is going to work globally and uniform around the world. So it's definitely a chance to look at different conditions, different, you know, amount of maintenance, the amount of resources that you have people going and actually being able to look after them in the long run. So there's so many different elements before you think about putting a different method in place. Um, Biowork Biorock works really well here just because because it needs electricity. That's another one of its down points. Um, we need to have businesses or we need to have power on the beach. So it's perfect for Gilly because there are businesses on every single part of this beach. Um, so they actually donate one cable that goes all the way out to the Biorock and powers that. Um, it's quite unsustainable still because this power comes from the land, which comes from the Indonesian grid, which is mainly uh, coal and fossil fuels. Um, so then about six years ago, we started creating Biorox with solar power. So we got these big solar panels. They are actually floating on a barge above the coral reef itself. So it's down point is because the sun is only out for 12 hours a day, we get um, some power and then some hours in the night when the Biorox are not powered. Um, but obviously we've eliminated that use of fossil fuels and anything that we need to run from the land. Um, to take that even further still it's been Delphine's dream because this has been her big project is to create a way for us to be able to power the Biorox um, with renewable energies we have these crazy currents which everybody loves to come diving in in Gilly because you don't need to kick anywhere because the current takes everything for you um, but yeah we are you know there, this is so much energy in the ocean that is just being you know essentially wasted apart from the fish that are loving a little ride uh, going through the currents so we've teamed up with um, a company that's actually UK and Canadian based um, a tech startup called Aquagen and they've essentially helped us to invent or they've invented it for us um, a turbine which will actually utilize ocean currents so instead of tidal or wave energy this is actually underwater ocean currents to generate the power to generate the electricity which will then power the biorock reef um, which is then in turn giving more you know more stability to the reef just because we've got more corals on it so it will also slow down wave energy wave energy and action to you know be able to build up the coral, uh, the beaches and things like this so um, if we can get this all in place, this is all happening. It's been so long. We've been talking about it in November. So very, very soon um, we're getting some of these turbines brought over from the UK. Um, we've got a massive, massive project um, that we're going to do in a new location off the coast of, of Gilly Tea, just because it's an area that's been damaged by coral, uh, by 
I want to say storm damage, um, but also human human influence. Um, so then we've got this kind of massive area park where we're going to be building a new Biorox site. And this is going to be based purely on um, ocean energy powering the entire thing. So blue renewables, um, which then does open up this technology to being able to be used in different locations that are more remote. They don't have access to electricity, but they do have access to these ocean currents. Then that is when Biorock can really start to expand and go into different places where it's always been quite limited. So very exciting stuff. The idea of bringing the tech world into ocean conservation is so exciting. I think that's something everyone can get behind. I've yeah. never seen a bio rock. I'm imagining some type of metal rock, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, what do they actually look like and how long do they need to be powered? Is it for their entire life they need some sort of energy or can they be turned off? So they actually can look like anything. So that's the amazing thing is usually we build um, a little metal um, like dome. So it's just out of uh, wire. So if you think of a wire cage, um, like a gabion basket that you'd use in, in coastal protection and things like this, um, we just create it out of a metal structure. Um, the, the fact that the metal can be moved into any different way means that um, the jet lagged came in and their logo was a paper airplane. So we made a paper airplane. Um, we've made a whale shark, we've made um, SpongeBob SquarePants' house, so a little square house with the top bit on top. Um, we've made big domes as like a roller coaster thing under there. Um, so yeah, what they look like is kind of up to the imagination of the artist. And at the moment for this big project, we do have an amazing artist who has been planning some fantastic things. So hopefully that will be um, updated soon on our socials. So we've got some stuff to show for that. Um, and then your other part of the question... It was Do what they looked like. Need and... to be powered indefinitely. So they don't need to be powered indefinitely. If they ever get turned off, which is quite frequent here because we have so many power cuts on our beautiful little tropical paradise. Um, so if we have a power cut, then this means that the, the Biorock itself is kind of turned off. Um, it won't kill it, it won't do anything. It would just then turn into a rock instead of a Biorock. Um, it won't get this increased boost of growth of the corals um, and unfortunately it won't get the uh, resilience that it gets to heat stresses so we actually keep the biorocks on all the time so we've got the solar panel ones which are on 12 hours a day the majority of the ones uh, are turned on as as much as they can be we do get some businesses which will forget that they have a biorock there and they'll pull it off to be able to charge their phone up so some of the staff uh, don't quite understand the need to keep it on all the time um, but we do tend to keep them on all the time because the beaches are you know, 24 hours a day parties and people there. So why not have one like light switch turned on just to be able to power these biorocks as well. So when we know we are getting areas, um, periods of rate rise sea temperatures. So April is usually um, getting quite warm. So the temperatures of the ocean water go up to 32 or 33 degrees. So we spend the first three months of the year um, repairing all the cables, making sure everything is turned on so that if if and when we do have this time of um, warmer ocean waters, then we already know that our Biorox are turned on, um, the corals are strong, the corals are resilient, and they can basically, um, yeah, almost dodge ble being bleached more than the rest of the natural reefs. So yeah, it's it's important for them to be turned on, especially just because, um, yeah, global warming is no secret. And um, yeah, the status of our corals is getting worse. So the more power, the more help we can give them, the better, especially this coming up, this next six months. Months. Damn, that's incredible. And it's really cool how you can not only save the corals, but create art with it, which, yeah, I would love to go dive there and just see it with my own eyes. But we'll make sure to share some photos. And I'm sure there's also a bunch yes. of uh, content on your socials to check those out. I want to see the SpongeBob house. That sounds so fun. Yeah, it's very cute. Um, can we touch a little bit on the other project that you are currently working on, the turtles? What does that look like? Is it, and is it on land or in the water? 
land turtles? Um, so it's turtles? actually on land, which is bizarre. Um, but we are famous, you know, famous for partying. But it also is one of the best places to come and dive and see sea turtles. So for, you know, many years, almost every dive you'll see sea turtles. You can snorkel. You can be standing waist deep in the ocean holding a beer and a sea turtle will just swim past you. So they are no strangers to people around here. They're generally well respected, so people don't touch them or anything like this. So you can get a really good experience of them coming really, really close. Um, one of the biggest issues we had is um, every year in nesting season for turtles, which is usually from April to around September, um, the turtles will come up the beach and they will lay their eggs. Um, and then within 50 days, they will hatch. Um, then they need to basically hatch out of their little nest, run down the sea, run down the beach um, and out to the ocean. So they need to do all of this within kind of 72 hours because that's the amount of energy they've got kind of saved up in their yolk sac to be able to get off the reef. Um, so a number of issues has been brought up in the last few years, the last decade probably. Um, the amount of parties on the beaches just means that there's loud music, there's lights, um, they've cut down all the trees, there's no sand left, there's bars everywhere, there's chairs, tables, bean bags. Um, literally there is just no space left for these turtles to start nesting. Um, and when they do nest, uh, unfortunately, the the main kind of idea in Indonesia is that baby turtles are so vulnerable and so small that we need to put them in a bucket or a aquarium or a tank for between a year and 18 months and, uh, you know, feed them and keep them happy and healthy and make it a great tourist attraction and then release them after this. So this process of head starting, um, it's been common knowledge in, in Indonesia since the 90s. I think the WWF and the government teamed up to say, you know, turtle farming and, and head starting these turtles is the best way to protect our turtles. Um, it's been since you know, totally discredited that head starting is a viable option for turtle conservation. Um, obviously, that news travels incredibly slowly. So um, it's been quite a challenge to change people's minds about keeping captive turtles in tanks. There's still a lot of it in Bali. Um, and as soon as you plaster the word turtle conservation on anything, somebody like me who loves the environment is going to throw money at it. So what we need to do now is kind of highlight the fact that you see the word conservation is unfortunately very very greenwashed these days so you really do need to read a lot into it you need to do as much research on your own as possible you need to you know look at reviews and see what people have said about things um to kind of see whether you think it's sustainable or not so here um, in 2018, we did still used to have um, a turtle sanctuary. We call it the turtle mortuary just because there were so many fatalities of baby turtles in this place. They usually keep them in water, very, very shallow water. They don't clean the water. Baby turtles are generally solitary animals until they're, you know, 15, 20, 25 when they're ready to come back to a reef to look for a mate. So to keep them in a tank with, you know, 60 of their brothers and sisters, they fight each other, they get infections. And as soon as one animal gets infected, then the entire group of them will get infected as well so um it's definitely not a really healthy thing there's still some on the other islands which people do repeatedly kind of show us and show us how disappointing the the conditions are for these animals so instead of us um going in with guns blazing which isn't really the way to do things in indonesia and probably for the rest of the world as well um education is the key um so to be able to educate people to tell them you know this isn't a viable solution um but here is a good viable solution so the gili eco trust has never wanted to turn around and be like no plastic straws unless there's an alternative you know you can't wear this type of sun cream in until we've got a reef safe sun cream in place so we always want to have a sustainable solution or an alternative to the issue before we go around loud mouthing about how bad something is so the the biggest issue with head starting is um you know, it's super widely known on the gillies or widely thought about on the gillies that this is a good thing to do. So generally when a turtle nest starts to hatch, people will then start picking them up and putting them straight into a bucket. So, you know, this baby turtle, it, it's within days of its life because it spends three days climbing out of the nest, out of the sand. It pokes its head up and the first like breath of oxygen is immediately been put into plastic. So, you know, the, then its plastic journey has started before, you know, before it's even hit the ocean. Um, so what we're trying to do is to basically incentivize people to not put them into buckets, not sell the eggs, not eat the eggs, not keep the baby turtles as pets or put them in tanks is that actually baby turtles need the ocean. Um, 
and th- it goes back to what I was doing in Malaysia a few times was you know the 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 hard work that this organization did in Malaysia to become a government owned hatchery where they could keep their own eggs on the beach um, they can guard their own eggs and then when the eggs hatch they can go straight into the sea so we've I've kind of been following them you know since I since I was 18 so a long time ago and um we're just kind of trying to follow the same things, but obviously being from Malaysia and Indonesia, it's, it's different cultures, um, it's different regulations, it's different everything like this. So it's trying to work with the local community um, and also people in power to try and put better things in place for turtles. It generally comes with awareness. Um, there's only so much I can do as an expat and as a female, because it's quite a challenging place um, for even that. Um, so when we started in, I think it was at the beginning of the pandemic and we realized that, you know, great, not great because the pandemic was terrible, but all the beach bars closed, all of the hotels closed, you know, everybody left the island, including a lot of the local community because they only are here for their jobs. So they're commuting every day or they're staying here before going back to their families. So we lost a massive proportion of people on the island. Um, everything turned off. And the amount of turtles that year that came to nest in 2020, starting from May, was phenomenal. It was amazing. So we saw a lot more turtles. So we could really see, you know, a cause and effect. You know, the beaches are quiet. More turtles are nesting. Um, So that was really good. That was really promising. But then because people started getting desperate and didn't have jobs, uh, we actually realized that then people start to come and take the eggs. They were selling the eggs as food for, you know, three eggs for 10,000 rupiah. Uh, which is a dollar, two dollars, I think. So it's abs- uh, 50 cents, I think, actually. Um, so it's crazy, crazy cheap. Um, they are endangered animals. They were selling them for the same price as the cost of a chicken egg. And that was, you know, desperate times on the island of people not having enough money to support themselves, support their families and things like this. So um we started a, a patrol with a few of the islanders that were left on the island, um, just going around the island every single morning at sunrise to see if we could see the tracks going up the beach, um, log nests, uh, hide nests, take measurements, take any predictions that we can, um, and then you know cover the nest and wait 50 days for the turtles to hatch again. So we used to do this before, but we used to put big cages over the top of them um, with big signs saying, hey, there's turtle eggs under here. Here's some facts about turtles and da 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 um, And then we realized that when the island was empty, when we were going around protecting these turtle nests, we were just going, hey, poachers, there's a turtle nest right here. So then we kind of started highlighting a bigger issue and we started kind of inviting poachers to come and steal the eggs. So we had to change our strategy once more. Um, and that just meant trying to collect as much data by walking around the island and you know, seeing three turtles have nested, rub out their tracks. So the next day we can find out how many turtles have nested again. So that was working really well. We had a really, really nice girl that joined us from that very first moment um, called Matla. And uh, she, you know, she was uh, one of the local girls that she just graduated from the, the high school here. And when we went around the table and we're like, you know, why is everybody here? Who likes turtles? What, what do you want to learn and stuff? Um, and she basically said, yeah, you guys came to our school, which is the little school on Gilly Tea, um, years ago when she was in high school and we handed out colorings and did some Green Day stuff. And ever since then, she's been fascinated by it and always been a bit too shy to kind of come and do stuff. But there she was ready to be a volunteer. Um, and yeah, and she just took everything in her stride. She's done so, so much work for the Gilly Eco Trust now. She's brought all of her friends in and they make amazing little social media videos. They are up way later than me. So they spend the evenings on the beach being able to check to see if turtles are around and stuff. Um, and now we've kind of created the project Penu, which is the turtle project. Um, and then Mala and her friends are actually going to the different businesses, giving out free workshops to all of the local staff. They're on the beach all night long. When they finish work, they'll sit there and, you know, have a drink or have a bonfire or something on the beach. So they're the people that really need to know about turtle conservation as much as it's important that the tourists know and tourists get educated. Right now, we need to focus on um, the local community, really, really understanding how critical it is to keep these turtle nests safe. So um, these girls, they go to all the different coastal businesses, the beach businesses on Gilly and um, 20 minute, 30 minute workshop. Um, we give them some bamboo straws. So if they don't have sustainable straws, they can you know, make that first step. They get provided them, they get a certificate um, and they get kind of like a helpline. So if they do see any turtles on the beach, they can call these girls and these girls can go down um, and kind of coach them through what to do, how to crowd control with all the tourists um, and just make sure that everything's safe. So. It's definitely been um, 
a lot easier with these girls doing this because their passion is through the roof. Like they're very, very motivated to help the environment and to help turtles. They are from Gili Turangan, so they were born here and went to school here. So they already have um, amazing levels of respect with the local community and just having a team of women going around and doing this and local women doing it, then um, yeah, it's just fantastic because they're getting a name for themselves. Um, I manage things from WhatsApp instead um, and it just has empowered them to be able to do this project as well. I, I unexpectedly had to go home uh, this summer in August, which is our turtle nesting season. So I was really panicked because, you know, I was like, they're turtles, what are they going to do? And these girls just had everything sorted. So they uh, managed everything at the time zone. The time difference was crazy. So by the time I woke up in the morning, I'd had a report that a turtle had nested somewhere or, you know, some action. Somebody was, you know, stealing baby turtles and putting them in buckets and things. And by the time I'd woken up, they'd sat there and they'd formed their army. They'd gone down to the beach. They'd talked to whatever was happening and they'd agreed to release them the next morning so yeah we had so many good uh, successful kind of releases even if it was being released from a box for from 12 hours or six hours or something they managed to get them in the sea and I think that's a massive win because the more these girls get a name for themselves then the more people know about it and then you know the local staff can talk to their tourists so you know indirectly it's still affecting the tourism but yeah to have a solid base to protect the turtles or for them to have any chance to keep coming back to this party island then yeah i think we just need uh, better better foundations in place with the local community as well in a nutshell <laughs> i mean so many interesting elements to this story i'm totally geeking out right now i studied community environment and development at university and What's really striking me is just, you know, I always look for patterns and themes in these sorts of conversations, and it's just really striking me how many similarities that you can find in working on these types of complicated, multi-layered issues with all of these different stakeholder groups that have different opinions. The science, the you know, the protocol of what to do with the turtles is changing, and then there's the element of identity. You know, you mentioned that being a female, being an expat, the local community. There's so many. There's so much to be gleaned off of just this one project you just described. So I appreciate you sharing your experience with that. Yeah, it's good fun. And it means we get to spend time yeah, with baby it's... turtles all the time. So that is amazing. Yeah, Before is. you go, we do have one question we like to ask everyone that comes onto the podcast, which is what has been your favorite moment with the ocean throughout your career or your entire life? What is that one memory that you love sharing or thinking about? Hmm. One moment. I was telling somebody, I still remember it, even though it was about seven or eight years ago, but I did uh, get a chance to go on a liverboard in Komodo. And my favorite animal has always been dolphins. It's always been, I've always been super obsessed with dolphins for since very young age. Um, and then, you know, I've never ever managed to see them we spent so many times going on these dolphin boat trips and it was like 99% chance of seeing a dolphin and it's like obviously zero so it took me to coming here and we were on a dive um, looking at macro stuff so we were filming some macro things and we just heard you know the sound in the water and it was just magical and then to be able to turn around my instructor actually picked me up my tank up and kind of threw me around which made me angry because of whatever we were looking at and then to watch a dolphin kind of like swim past us like that it was well, yeah, truly magical and I feel like they really do look into your soul I understand you know why so many people are in the same boat as me and find them so chillingly beautiful and so yeah just so amazing and I remember having a, a book when I was a kid which I read a billion and one times about a dolphin and being able to talk to a dolphin so yeah one day I'm hoping that a dolphin still will want to contact me and uh, we can have a little chat <laughs> and be friends <laughs> that's incredible now that I'm thinking about it, I think my favorite animals are dolphins too. It's always circling back yeah. to it. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm giving this it a is chance it, yeah. and say something else, but it's always dolphins. Like whenever I see dolphins, yeah. at the I always beach, have I'm a flavor like, of the week. <gasps> Whatever you see that's amazing, but then back to dolphins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally agree. Well, that's a beautiful. Well, thank story. you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much for having me and listening to me for so long. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing and thank you for coming on to the podcast today. We loved hearing about your work with Gilly T and Gilly Eco Trust. We'll be sure to share 
uh, links to all of your information in the show notes for anyone that wants to follow along with your journey with the islands and with the turtles. Thank you so much. Yeah, we, we do have a little fundraiser for each one of our projects, which we're slowly trying to put online. So uh, you can adopt a turtle or a turtle nest in one of them. Um, I guess you can adopt a horse or a horse cart um, for picking up all the waste. Um, and we're trying to get all of our projects online to obviously give a little bit more transparency about what each project entails. Um, but it gives a chance for people to be able to support, even if they can't come here and actually get on their hands and knees and pick up some rubbish on the beach. Um, yeah, the support from all over the world is just phenomenal. I, I hope you guys do get a chance to come one day and I'll show you the Biorox. And thank you very much for having me. Hopefully. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Ocean Stories. If you'd like to follow along on Instagram, you can find us at oceanstories underscore podcast for updates and behind the scenes. We'll also be sharing our ocean adventures on YouTube at Ocean Stories Podcast. If you like this episode, please show your support by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Join us next Tuesday for more Ocean Stories.